You're listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church, Van Alstine. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Now here's Pastor Mike. Well, let's take our Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5. We are in a sermon series called Hold Firm that we started a number of weeks ago. Uh, In this message, we are getting a grip on the confession of our faith. We're studying biblically-based doctrine, which guides our faith and practice, and especially as expressed and clarified for us in the Baptist faith and message. Uh, The key text for this series, the foundational text, is Titus chapter 1, verse number 9. If you've been here uh, faithfully over these last uh, several weeks, then hopefully by now you've committed this verse of Scripture to memory. That's kind of been... Uh, the purpose uh, behind showing it to you each week. Uh, But it says there, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now this morning we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 5. We were in Matthew's uh, gospel last week as we looked at uh, the section of Matthew 5 there on salt and light. Um, If uh, you're not familiar with uh, the lay of the land of Matthew's gospel, chapter 5 is where you find the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, and it's here that we have, uh, of course, the Beatitudes, Uh, and then you'll notice in most of your Bibles, you've got these different sections, the one on salt and light, Jesus addresses anger, he addresses lust, divorce, uh, oaths, even retaliation, and then as we move into the last part of this fifth chapter, uh, today we're going to focus our attention on verses 43 through 45. Uh, You probably have some sort of heading that says, love your enemies. That's not an easy thing to do, is it? It doesn't come naturally. Human nature says, I I, I do something different than that. Uh, Human nature says, I seek retaliation. Human nature says that while I can love my neighbors and those that I like and those that I agree with generally and and those that are like me and all those things, I I can do that, but it's a little more difficult to love my enemies. And so Jesus addresses that here in verses 43 through 45, and I want you to follow along with me as I read. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, if you're familiar with this fifth chapter of Matthew, you, uh, you know that there's a, a pattern that you see here in the way that Jesus expresses some of these key truths. Uh, you'll notice with each of these sections, he says something along the lines of, you have heard that it has been said, but I say this. Uh, and so Jesus, in some cases, further clarifies. Uh, he, he, he helps us to, to expand our thinking as it relates to some of these things from a purely legalistic viewpoint to, to understanding uh, the, the truth of Scripture and, and getting a, a more full-bodied uh, picture of what, what he's trying to, to teach here. And so in a similar way, he does that with uh, this statement on loving our enemies. He says, you have heard that it was said. So the common thinking of the day 
uh, and even reaches back into uh, what the law would have certainly said to, to love your neighbor. Uh, we really don't find a reference to, to hating your enemy, although certainly there would have been those in that day who would have, have joined those two teachings together somehow and would have said, yeah, while we are to love our neighbors, we're to hate our enemies. And so Jesus says, surely you've heard that. You've heard this kind of thinking. You've heard, this kind of, uh, heard of this kind of worldview. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so this gives us a foundation for what Scripture teaches on this subject of how we relate to, to those that we would consider even our enemies. Now the article that we're looking at today is actually article number 16. There are two more that follow. I, when I originally laid out the skeleton for this series of messages, I thought I would join um, the next article with this one. Uh, and the next article is the one on religious liberty. Uh, and, but uh, God would have it otherwise. And so we've separated these two. And today we're simply going to look at article number 16 on peace and war. And I want you to see the wording of this article number 16 in the Baptist Faith and Message. It says there, it is the duty of Christians to seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness. In accordance with the spirit and teachings of Christ, they should do all in their power to put an end to war. The true remedy for the war spirit is the gospel of our Lord. You notice a common theme here in some of these articles? What it's doing is it's pointing us again to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the good news of the gospel. Even in last week's article, as we talked about the Christian and the social order and, and those things, we're continually driving back to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say here, the supreme need of the world is the acceptance of his teachings in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical application of his law of love. Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. Now let's, let's step back for just a moment. I want to give you a little bit of a, a, a historical background to this article particularly. The, the first Baptist faith and message was adopted in 1925. Okay, so think back to, to history class. Uh, that was just a few years after what was described as the war to end all wars. Okay, so put it in that context. And you'll remember that in World War I, which ended in 1918, just a, a few years before that first Baptist faith and message, several new instruments of warfare were introduced. The newly invented airplane was quickly adapted to war, and poison gas was used in combat for the first time on a major scale. Tanks appeared and changed the, the battlefield significantly. Machine guns, while they had been utilized uh, in, in previous conflicts, they, they found their place uh, more common on the battlefields of what many thought would surely be the last major war. Well, sadly, we know that that wasn't the case. And after World War I, our Baptist forefathers believed that Christians were too smart to ever engage in another war with the terrible weapons that had been used in that first world war. So the Baptist faith and message was revised again in 1963, once more in 1999, and the peace and war section was practically untouched in both of those revisions. And then the revision committee of the year 2000 said this, that we do not regard them as complete statements of our faith, having any quality of finality or infallibility. And we've said that throughout this series. Any kind of a confession of faith that we may hold to 
in this case, the Baptist faith and message, we said that it submits to Scripture. Okay, it is born out of Scripture. Okay, this is infallible. This is inerrant. This is eternal. Okay, these statements just help us clarify some of these things that we hold uh, to be true. And so it submits to Scripture. And so what that revision committee said is uh, there may be some things that we need to, to further clarify. And that's why you've had these different revisions through the years. Now, with all that in mind, you fast forward to where we are today, 2018, and you find a world that is vastly different from the world of 1925. Okay, some of you may have been there. And praise the Lord that you've had a good long life. I only read about it in history books. But since 1925, our world has experienced the criminal fanaticism of Hitler's Germany, the cruelty of Japanese imperialists. A lot has changed. It seems that America has inherited this kind of post-World War II role as a policeman or a protector of the oppressed and, and of emerging nations. And then we know that rapidly following World War II, there was Korea, and then there was Vietnam, and then there was Grenada, and Somalia, and Desert Storm, and Iraqi Freedom, and numerous other conflicts. Unfortunately, during this time, we have also witnessed the birth of the modern-day version of terrorism. And who can make sense of that? The rules have changed. You know, there was this thing called the Geneva Convention. That, that, that was regarded as kind of the rules of warfare, so to speak. Well, that, that, that's kind of been thrown out the window, right? Now, now non-combatants are being used, and innocent people are having bombs strapped to themselves and, and then detonated in, in, in busy marketplaces. And so they're non-combatants who are now on the battlefield, not by their own choosing. So things are very, very different. Words like jihad terrorism have now become a regular part of our news cycles, holy war, things of that nature. Has there ever been an oxymoron like holy war? Terrorism isn't new. In fact, it can be found in most of our history books and in our Bibles, in fact. Not usually under the, the label terrorism, but it's there. Think about this. Conflict and violence and war have been around since the fall of man. After Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden uh, of Eden, it wasn't long before Cain killed his brother Abel, the first murder. By the fourth chapter of Genesis, Lamech, Noah's father, is bragging that he killed a man in a fight. Okay, so you got, got machoism there too. I mean, here it is. In Genesis 14, we find Abraham had in excess of 300 professional soldiers in his organization when he leads an operation to rescue Lot and his family. Remember when the Hebrew children left Egypt in, Hebrews, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 18, it says, Israel went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Armed for battle. There are people who have known conflict throughout their history. Every year thereafter, war became a part of the Jewish life. In the book of Numbers, the Amorites, the Moabites, the, the Midianites, they lost battles to the army of Israel. By the time we get to Deuteronomy chapter 20, God said, when you go to war against the enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God will be with you. We're all familiar with Joshua's history. General Joshua, as he, as he uh, led the, the efforts to defeat Jericho's defensive wall and its army. By the time David became king, Israel had a highly trained professional army, and the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles uh, abound with war stories. 
But then we look at Matthew chapter 5. And the apex of what we call the Beatitudes is found in these words. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called the children of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Peacemaking is described as a fundamental characteristic of believers. The Messiah was called the Prince of Peace by Isaiah the prophet. Jesus said of himself, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, there in John chapter 14. The Christian gospel itself is called the gospel of peace. The Holy Spirit himself produces the fruit of peace. It's listed there as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Now understand this, peace is not merely the absence of war. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom, refers to a state of harmony. It refers to prosperity, to well-being, to completeness. And so with those thoughts in mind, I want you to consider some areas where Christians are called to make peace, to experience peace. Okay, one is vertical, the other two are horizontal. Okay, most of us are aware that, that we have essentially two different types of relationships. We are to have a vertical relationship with God, and then we are to maintain uh, health in our horizontal relationships with our fellow man, whether it be in your family or in your church family or in your work life, uh, with your neighbors, the, the people with whom you do community. Okay, how do you get along with people? And one of the things that, that we all know to be true is that when you, when you come up against somebody who is, is constantly seems in a state of conflict with their fellow man, you know those people that are just hard to get along with? Come on, shake your head like I'm not the only one who experiences this, right? I mean, really. There's some people that, I mean, you just, when you see them coming, you want to you know, duck, run for cover or something, right? I mean, they're just abrasive kind of people. They're, they're hard to get along with. It seems like they're constantly in a state of conflict with their fellow man somehow. I mean, it's, if it's not you, it's somebody else. I mean, it's in, and then whenever they do you know, share anything, it's, it's probably related to some kind of conflict in another area of their life. Well, understand this. If, if someone is living life like that, where they're just kind of in constant conflict with their fellow man and their horizontal relationships, that's an indication that they either have no vertical relationship with God, or if they do, it's not healthy. And so I want you to see the difference here and the distinction in these types of relationships. This, this vertical relationship is one where we, we need to, to come to understand personal peace with God. I'm not just talking about the peace of God. We certainly know that Scripture talks about a peace that passes all understanding. You cannot experience the peace of God until you are at peace with God. Now let me make sure you understand what I'm saying here. In Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, it says, Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So apart from turning from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ and him reconciling the, the relationship that you have with God, then you are at odds with God. You're at enmity with God, Scripture says. Okay, and the only way that you can experience peace with God, that you can be reconciled to God, is through Jesus Christ and the work that he did on Calvary. So if you're here today and you, and you have this sense within you that something's just not right, that you, just, that you, just, can't, you just can't seem to find the peace that it seems other people may have, and, 
it may, may very well be that you have not made peace with God through Jesus Christ. If it seems that there's something missing in your life and you're, you're, you're trying and you're struggling, it seems like maybe your whole life is just a struggle to try to be a better person and maybe be good enough and all those things, understand that, that you can't do it on your own. It takes the great reconciler, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is that vertical, personal peace with God. I hope that that's your testimony today. That you are experiencing the peace of God in your life because you are at peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then there's a horizontal peace, a reconciliation within the body of Christ. How do we, how do we deal with one another? I, I don't know how else to say it. Except we're supposed to get along, y'all. Okay? That's what Scripture admonishes. Now, that's not to say that we're going to agree on everything. Okay? Just like I said earlier in the service. Some of you think it's still a little warm in here right now. Some of you think it's a little cool. There's things we're just not going to agree upon. But when it's all said and done, we're supposed to, to walk together in harmony, in unity. Um, you know, if... Uh, if you, if you enjoy music, then, then you know the difference between harmony and discord. Okay? I mean, I can go over there and sit down at that piano, and I can appear like I know what I'm doing, but as soon as I put my hands on those keys, you will know without a doubt that I do not. Because it will not sound good. It'll be discord. There are certain notes when played together just don't work. I know enough about music to know that. They just don't work. It clashes. And that's what you find as you relate to other people sometimes. There's just discord. And the Bible speaks very clearly about those who would sow discord within the body of Christ. I'm just going to say it this way. Some of y'all need to learn to shut your mouth. Man, that's coming right back at me too. There's times that I just need to learn to keep my mouth shut. And most of the time when I get myself in trouble with my fellow man, it's because I've said something I had no business saying. Or weighing in on a subject that I had no business weighing in on. Okay, so there's supposed to be a, a horizontal peace within the body of Christ. And one of the reasons that the church generally is not as, nearly as effective as we should be in this world is because we just can't get along. We're spending way too much time looking inward and trying to sort out all of our differences and all those kind of things that we can't focus on the, the world around us and giving them the good news of the gospel. So there's that horizontal peace. And then there is horizontal peace in the world and society at large. Now, this is where it gets a little more difficult. Because if you look at the world around us, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find uh, peace with this world. But yet, we're admonished in the book of Romans chapter 12, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, the Baptist Faith and Message statement here is very specific that this peacemaking is to be based on principles of righteousness. And here's the reason. Where unrighteousness and injustice and wickedness dwell, and we see that all around us today, right? All around the world. Where those things dwell, where those things are, are, are so common, there can be no peace, according to Isaiah chapter 48. The reason for this is that unrighteousness sustains division and discord and pain and strife. And so whether it is in your personal life, your family life, your business life, your school life, or in international relationships, there will be no biblical peace, healthiness, harmony, unless it is founded upon God's righteousness. 
And the statement calls upon the faithful to do all in their power to put an end to war. And while some have suggested that that must mean unilateral disarmament, I'll tell you that traditionally or historically, Baptists have for the most part taken the position that sometimes in order to establish a just and righteous peace, following the Augustinian tradition, a just war must be engaged. And we've seen through history, there are times when an enemy just must be engaged. And throughout history, Christians have adopted really three major positions uh, regarding Christian participation in war and the proper attitude toward it. There's an activism. It seems to be more common today. Uh, and what that activism does is it affirms that Christians are morally obligated to participate in any and all wars in which their government commands their, their services. Then there's pacifism. You're probably more familiar with that. Pacifism sees no place whatsoever for Christians to engage in any type of warfare at all. If you saw the movie that came out not too long ago, uh, Hacksaw Ridge, and then you know it was based upon a story of a, a young man who was a pacifist. He refused to participate in warfare itself. And then there's what's called selectivism. Selectivism advocates that Christians may participate in just wars. Now, this selectivism denies that Christians should participate in all wars. Make that clear. Passivism, on the other hand, denies that war is an, is an appropriate activity for a child of God due to the evil nature of war itself. And so opponents of war can seek conscientious objector status that grants alternatives to military service and so forth. Some pacifists even refuse to invest in companies that produce materials used in war and would rather than invest in so-called peace funds. You, some of you are more familiar with that. Selectivism appeals to the just war tradition that, that was originally defined by Augustine dealing with the just causes for war and the just means to uh, engage in war. Now let me clarify something here. The criteria for engaging in just war includes a declaration of war by a legitimate authority the proportionate use of force, and protection for non-combatants. Now, this is where it's becoming more difficult today. Right now, some of you, your mind is already going back to 9-11. And you can vividly remember where you were that morning, that fateful morning, and what you were doing or what you were preparing to do on that day. And you also remember it as the first time in your life that you saw us being engaged in a war on our own soil in that way. The rules have changed. Thousands of innocent people got up that morning with the intention of going to work and going about their day and their lives ended on what amounted to a battlefield in New York City and in Pennsylvania and in Washington. The Southern Baptists adopted the article on peace and war during a time when pacifism was on the rise within the Southern Baptist Convention. And reflecting the mood of the nation at that time, messengers at almost every SBC annual meeting between World Wars I and II passed resolutions calling for international disarmament. In fact, a resolution passed at the Southern Baptist Convention in 1941 that stated this, We hereby express our utter abhorrence of war as an instrument of international policy and our profound conviction and belief that all international differences could and of a right ought to be composed of peaceful or by peaceful diplomatic exchanges and when these fail by arbitration. 
the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message deleted a sentence from the 1925 uh, Baptist Faith and Message calling on all Christians to pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. Do you, do you pray for peace? You should. You should pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 restored the substance of that call to prayer with this statement. We read it a moment ago. Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. It's my belief that until we personally can experience the reign of the Prince of Peace here on this earth, we will not have world peace as we might imagine or would love to have. So the Baptist Faith and Message article here on peace and war builds on that previous article that we looked at last week, the Christian and the social order that calls on Christians to bring the influence of Christ to bear upon human society. And it sets forth the method, the manner, the message, the mandate of peace. Now, here's an issue that we have particularly here in America. We're proud people, aren't we? Let's just face it. We're proud people. Okay, And that's okay to a point. But we got to be very careful because we love nothing more than to, to hear it said of us that we are the most powerful nation in the world. And that certainly could be argued. We are the most powerful nation in the world. We have things here in America. We have conveniences here in America that, that some places, I mean, just can't even imagine. Imagine. That's why we will, when we're complaining about something sometimes these days, we'll say, well, I guess that's a first world problem, isn't it? There are people that, they don't even know what it is to lose their phone charger. What? What is that? They're wondering if they're going to get some clean water this week, okay? And so here's the problem. If we only look at the world through an American lens, it's very easy for us to adopt the attitude, we are better than you. We're better than you. And we're better than you. And we're better than you. But I'm going to assure you something, that is not a biblical worldview. And if you're one of those who is prone to, in, in, in the current climate and culture of our day, it, it appears at times that, man, things are kind of teetering back and forth, and, and you've got this world leader saying, I got this, and I'm going to do this, and then this world leader comes back, and I got this, and I'm going to do this, and we're going to do, you know, there's kind of this chest bumping kind of thing going on. If your attitude in the midst of all of those sorts of things is we ought to just go over there and bomb them all, you might want to check that, that spirit and that attitude against Scripture. Because a biblical worldview says that every single human being on this planet is created in the image of God. And it should never be our desire or our heart, our heart cry, that any of those people be annihilated. Okay, be very careful as it relates to these things. We recognize that sometimes engagement is necessary. Okay? I'm not suggesting that we just sit back and do nothing. But as believers, we need to check our heart attitude toward the rest of the world. And the fact of the matter is, much of the world is coming to us. We know that to be true. And so regardless of your views on immigration and illegal immigration and all those things that are being debated today, the truth is, if somebody's in your path, regardless of their country of origin or their, their first language or anything else, if they need the gospel, give them the gospel. Don't think to yourself, well, you, your skin tone or your, the, the, I can tell that accent, I, you know, and man, God forbid that any of us would ask a person, do you have your green card? Because if you don't, then I'm not sharing the gospel with you. 
What a horrific stance. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that I'm, I'm, I'm not advocating lawlessness or helping people break the laws of our land or any of those things. But the fact remains that there are a lot of people who are here, and they're here for a reason. God's not surprised by that. Sovereign God is in control of the way that the landscape of this world is changing all the time. <laughs> our, our culture is becoming more international every single day. And so what does that cause us to do as followers of Jesus Christ? Are we going to look at this world through a biblical lens or purely through an American lens? So consider these important truths. We've got to prioritize the method of peace. That is to seek peace with all men and then the, the, the manner of peace on principles of righteousness. On principles of righteousness. So one of the most important things that we can do is live out our faith. Just live out our faith. Be authentic in your faith. Don't say one thing and do something else. Don't say one thing and live something else. Live out your faith in a consistent way that honors God. That glorifies God. Wherever you are. And then there's this singular message of peace. And what is that? It's that the gospel is a remedy for the war spirit. The gospel is a remedy for the war spirit. So, so think of this. We support regularly missionaries who are serving in places where it's very difficult. They're serving in areas that are called closed nations. Okay, That's why they have to use pseudonyms just for their own safety. Okay, they are serving daily, getting up, waking up in places where, where they don't have any of the freedoms that we might enjoy as it relates to our faith here in America. And they're there for one reason, to share with those people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what are you doing to support those people, those, those missionaries who are on the front lines, as it were? And we know that there are hot spots. why two weeks ago we prayed for the persecuted church. You know, we think of Christian martyrdom as something that was, you know, that's, that's way back when, centuries ago, you know. No, 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 no. There are people today who are still giving their lives for the cause of, of Christ. So how are we supporting them? How are we praying for them? How are we upholding them as they share the gospel in these areas? And then the Baptist faith and message mandates that we pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. We pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. So the focus here regarding peace centers on the coming king and his kingdom. Is that something that you long for? That you eagerly await? Jesus is coming back. And he is going to set in order what looks very chaotic right now. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church Van Alstine. FBCVA is located at 121 East Marshall Street in Van Alstine, Texas, or you can visit us online at www.fbcva.com. Be sure to visit the Sermon Archive for more messages from this and other series.